Hi, everybody. If we haven't met, my name's Terry Smith. I'm the lead pastor of the Life Christian Church, and I'm so glad that you've joined us for today's service. Listen, um, today I'm going to offer the final message in the seven-part series we've been engaged in called Soul Rest, How to Thrive in Restless Times. I hope you've enjoyed this series. And today, I'm going to offer a very simple, but I think incredibly important gospel message. I'm going to do a, a teaching today that I hope will impact your life in a powerful way. I might say that if you're interested in hearing me address the current events that are uh, affecting our nation in such a powerful way uh, over these last few weeks that last week I spoke about that extensively and I encourage you to listen to that message talking about how that we're in this together. So um, today, again, I want to offer a very simple, straightforward, gospel message that I hope will impact every area of your life. So I want to begin with, with an odd fact. Here it is. There are only three times in all of Scripture where the word sweat or perspire is mentioned. Strange as it may seem, the implications of that little factoid are both fascinating and, and important, really important. You might say that God has an aversion to sweat. There is this great passage in Ezekiel's prophecy where God tells him that the priests who minister in his presence in the temple are not supposed to wear anything that would cause them to sweat. This is one of the three times that the word sweat or perspire is mentioned. Here's uh, the prophecy of Ezekiel. The priest, God says, shall come near me to minister to me, and it shall be whenever they enter the gates of the inner court that they shall put on linen garments. No wool shall come upon them while they minister. They shall have linen turbans on their heads and linen trousers on their body. They shall not clothe themselves with anything that causes sweat. That's what God said. Ezekiel 44 is full of instructions for the priest in the Old Testament temple. But as is so often the case, this prophecy has relevance for us today, most of which I won't get into now. But one thing it reminds us is that God seems to have an issue with sweat. He tells the priest that when they come into his presence, they're not to wear wool, which was the common and relatively inexpensive fabric worn by people at that time, but rather that they are to wear linen, which was a more delicate and expensive clothing. And the reason why he wanted them to wear linen and not wool is pretty straight, straightforward. He didn't want to see them sweat in his presence. When I was a very young preacher, I used the word sweat in a sermon, and my dad was of the opinion that sweat is a crude word, and he corrected me. He said, don't say people sweat. Horses sweat, men perspire, and women glow. Don't say that people sweat. Well, 
He'll be happy to know as he watches today, my dad that is, hi dad, along with all of you, that the New International Version translates this passage, they must not wear anything that makes them perspire. Regardless, why would God care about a priest sweating or perspiring, whatever word makes you feel better? Uh, well, let's look at the other two times in Scripture that the word sweat or perspire is mentioned. Only two other times. I think this is pretty uh, interesting. So the first time is in the very beginning, in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam was receiving the curse from God because he had made the choice not to do life the way God planned it, but to do life the way he wanted. And God said to Adam, because you ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground since from it you were taken. So God says, Adam, when I created you, I blessed you and I purposed you and you worked in partnership with me in the Garden of Eden. But now, because you don't want to live the way that I planned for you to live, you're not going to be in the garden with me. You're going to be out in the wilderness by yourself. And what used to be easy is now going to be hard. You are now going to have to work for everything you eat by the sweat of your brow until the day you return to the earth, until the day you die. What had been blessed now will be cursed, and part of that is that what used to be sweatless is now going to only be accomplished through sweaty human effort. By the sweat of your brow, you're going to have to earn everything that comes to you. Now, the last and third time the word sweat is mentioned in all of Scripture is in Luke's account of the prayer of Jesus in another garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. It's a well-known passage. Jesus is praying and we're told that being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus, in the process of taking the curse of Adam on himself, on himself, sweat drops of blood. So in the Garden of Eden, the curse included the sweat of our brow. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus accepted the curse on himself and his sweat again was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Now think about how large the Bible is. Think about how many words there are. These are the only three times the word sweat or perspire is used. And I think it's fascinating and important uh, just from what I've already said to you. I hope you feel the same way, but it gets better at least for my money. I find things like this so incredibly interesting, nuggets of truth that impact our lives in Scripture. At the time of Christ, when people would die, the body would be prepared for burial through a very elaborate ritual. This included wrapping the body in burial clothes, uh, often made of linen, and covering the face with a handkerchief 
or what was sometimes called a napkin. The handkerchief or napkin in biblical times was used primarily as a, quote, cloth to wipe off perspiration. That's from the International Bible Encyclopedia. Now, men of a certain age, guys like me, sophisticated guys, I'm kidding, kind of, still carry a handkerchief. And uh, I use this handkerchief primarily to wipe the sweat of my brow, usually when I'm preaching on a Sunday morning. All right, well, when, when someone would be buried at the time of Christ, they would cover their face with a handkerchief, with a sweat cloth. The scholar Merrill F. Unger simply called it a sweat cloth. So uh, you see things like this. When Jesus called Lazarus from the tomb, um, we're told that, that when Lazarus came out, he was bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth, a sweat cloth, a handkerchief. So remember the, the, the curse in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, if you might be saying, well, why would they cover their face with a sweat cloth? Well, the curse was, by the sweat of your brow, you will work until the day you return to the ground. So when someone would die and they put them in the ground, they would cover their face with a handkerchief in order to say that their work was finished. There would be no more sweat. Well, this gives a whole new meaning to the story around the resurrection of Jesus. You might remember that, that, that Mary Magdalene and some other women saw Jesus uh, resurrected, the empty tomb. They ran to tell the disciples. Peter and John had a foot race, according to John's gospel, to the tomb. John got there first, John said, and he looked in, but he didn't go in. But Simon Peter went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Now, what's going on here? When Jesus Christ was buried, a cloth was put over his face to say that his work is finished. Now when he's raised from the dead, for whatever reason, it appears that the linen that had been wrapped around his body was left lying in a heap, but that handkerchief was, one uh, translation indicates, folded by a place uh, by itself. Jesus took the time to take that sweat cloth, it seems, and to, and to leave it in its place, to put it back where it had been when it had covered his face. What in the world uh, is going on here? It's as if Jesus is saying, it's finished. My work is over. I took the curse. I defeated death. I sweat great drops of blood. And there is now no more need for the curse of sweat. It's over. I took care of it. I did it. Now, what might this mean for us? Obviously, we need to apply it spiritually, not physically. If, if I were to tell you that that God didn't want someone to sweat in his presence, I'd be in trouble because I typically end most Sunday sermons at least with a sweaty brow. So that's not the point. 
Um, we have to apply it figuratively, not literally, spiritually, not physically. And when we do, I think you probably have already leapt to the point. It's as if God is saying to us that he doesn't want us to come into his presence all sweaty from our own efforts. It's as if he's saying to us, the New Testament priesthood, that's all of us, as we're called in Peter's letter to the church, kings and priests, that we, as we come into God's presence to minister, are not supposed to wear the wool, we're supposed to wear the linen. We're supposed to show that we don't have to sweat our way into relationship with God because he already sweat for us. He already did the work that needs to be done for us and it is finished. So it's as if God is saying, receive what I did, walk in what I did, come into my presence and promises in your life, not by your own sweaty efforts, but by the power of the gospel. Through my dying, through my entering death, through my resurrection, through my offer of new life, receive what I did by grace, not by your own sweaty human efforts. Now, this has powerful implications for our initiation into Christ or salvation itself. We are saved from death or life as it isn't meant to be, the curse, to life or life as it is meant to be or the blessing. And we're saved by God's effort, not our own. You're familiar, most of you, with the passage in Ephesians that says it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Remember, grace is all about God. Grace is about God's initiative. Grace is about God's effort. Grace is about what God does. Grace is about what God gives. We are saved by grace through faith. Faith is now what we can do, meaning all that we can do to connect to God's grace is to believe that his grace is enough to save us. So it is by grace you are saved through faith, and this is really important to God. This not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, not by our human effort, not by our sweat, if you please, so that no one can boast. This has powerful implications not only for our initiation into Christ or what we call being saved, but it also has powerful implications for then the life that we're supposed to live now that we are in relationship with God and especially the good works that all of us are called to do. Remember, we are not saved by our works or our human effort, but we are saved to do the good works that we were made to do. But even the good works the good work that we're supposed to do is not supposed to be accomplished in our own efforts alone, but in partnership with God in a way where our work becomes, well, I'm calling it today sweatless work, not literally, spiritually, sweatless work. 
So the rest of that passage in Ephesians says, you know, the, the passage that says, it's by grace we're saved through faith, not, that of, not of ourselves. It's the gift of God so that none of us can boast. It goes on then to say in verse 10, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. So even the work that we're called to do is work done in partnership with God where we're just cooperating with him if we can get this right and live by faith we're cooperating with him in things he already prepared for us so I submit to you then that it is possible to rest from sweaty work and thrive in sweatless work I know what it is to strive in my own efforts to actualize God's promises in my life sweaty, tight-fisted, jaw-clenched, teeth-gritted, desperate, sweaty human effort. I also know what it is to walk in faith in God, to trust in God, to rest in God, where I work hard but yet somehow get out of the way so that God can work in and through me. There's a thin line of separation between these two realities, but a world of difference. See, when we're living in faith and trust in Jesus and what he did and what he does and what he promises to do, then we live in a place of rest. We started this series, I think it was seven weeks ago, Uh, by focusing on two scriptures, both of which I'll talk a little bit about today. One is uh, Hebrews chapter 4. I taught in the first message in this series at some length about the context of this passage. I just want to extract a few uh, scriptures here that talk about the rest that God promises that we can live in. Hebrews 4, therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. It still remains for some to enter that rest, since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God, For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest. I like then the way the Living Bible translates Hebrews 4, 9, and 10. There is a full, complete rest still waiting for the people of God. Christ has already entered there. He is resting from his work just as God did after the creation. Now, you might say, perhaps if you're not tracking with me, and you kind of have to in a message like this, you know, if the dog's jumping on and off your lap like, like my dog does when I'm watching our service on a Sunday morning, it's easy to get a little distracted and, and maybe even miss the point. And I even know what the point is because I'm, I'm, I'm the one who made it. Please hear me when I say, we have an offer from God to live in His rest. 
to not get up every day depending just on ourselves and our sweaty effort to try to make everything happen in our lives that leads us to an exhaustion of the soul. We are offered by God the possibility of living in a different place than most of the people in this world do. It's a place that's offered to us through the gospel, through faith in Jesus. We can live in this place called rest. It's rest in the deepest part of who we are. It's rest in our souls. And so this rest is promised in Hebrews 4. On the other hand, we are warned not to miss it. Some scholars prefer part of this to be said this way. Let us be careful that none of you suppose he has missed it. In other words, God offers rest. Don't think that you've missed it. If you're not experiencing it in your life, you can have it, you can still enter it, you can enter it today, and you could live in it every day of your life. So, let me spend the rest of my time then organizing kind of what I hope will be takeaways in three thoughts. Um, three thoughts on entering God's rest. The first one is, that we rest from our work. We rest from our work. So, there are actually two Greek words translated rest or the combination word Sabbath rest in Hebrews 4. Now, I know you're getting interested now that I'm going to talk about Greek words. You know, the New Testament was obviously written in Greek and sometimes the English language has a difficult time capturing the, um, the nuance of words in a way that helps us really understand what God is trying to say through Scripture. So every once in a while, I'll tell you what the original meaning of a word was. And this is a case where there are, there are a couple Greek words translated rest or Sabbath rest in this passage. The first is the word rest in Hebrews 4, 1, 3, 6, 10, and 11, and it simply means put it to rest or cause it to cease. And then there's the word rest or Sabbath rest in verse 9, and I love the way that W.E. Vines in his expository uh, dictionary of biblical words tells us what Sabbath rest means. So we're told we can enter God's rest or we can Put it to rest. Whatever you're struggling with today and trying to make happen in your life, you can enter a place to God where you put it to rest, where you cause it to cease. But also, then, there's this, there's this place called Sabbath rest. And here's what Vine says. Here, the Sabbath keeping is the perpetual Sabbath rest to be enjoyed uninterruptedly by believers in their fellowship with the Father and the Son in contrast to the weekly Sabbath under the law. So he's not saying you can enter a Sabbath day, which I'm going to talk about in a moment, which I think is a gift God offers us, but he's saying you can live and experience a Sabbath rest, a harmonious 
relationship with God that you enjoy uninterruptedly. So you say, okay, well then how do we enter this rest? Well, it's very clear both in this passage and in Scripture that we enter into God's rest through faith through faith. We believe what God says to us. We hear the good news. We respond to the good news. We say yes to the good news. And we cease from our own efforts to save ourselves or to make ourselves right with God. And we receive what Jesus did. There's a wonderful passage in Paul's letter to the Romans. I, I love it. It, it, it. it captures so much in, in, in a short uh, verse. It's where Paul said, to the one who does not work, but trust God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Let me read it again. To the one who does not work, now remember, God's got this thing about sweaty work, human effort, people trying through their own effort to do what only God can do. So Paul says to the one who does not work, but trust God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Now, what does it mean to be righteous? Well, one definition of righteousness, again, the original word, is that we, when we're, when we're counted as righteous, we are, in God's eyes, all that God requires us to be. To be righteous means, at least in part, to be all that God requires for us to be. I believe that at the root of human angst, at the root of human restlessness, there is a question about our standing with God. What an amazing thing it would be if we could lay our head on our pillow every night and believe that the God of the universe looks at us and says, you are everything I require a person to be. Just, well, think about how that would affect your rest. God says, I am everything I am required to be. Well, the fact is, when we believe in Jesus, our faith is credited to us as righteousness. When we believe in Jesus, that he in fact took our curse on himself, that he paid the penalty for it, that he entered death, that he defeated death, that he offers us new life. When we believe that, our faith is credited to us as righteousness. At that moment, God looks at us and says, you are everything I require a person to be. How does that happen? Does that happen by our human effort? Does that happen by our sweaty work? No, Jesus, Jesus took the curse of sweat on himself, he already satisfied that. And he offers to us, if we'll believe in him, blessing, rest in our souls. Craig Keener, the, the scholar, uh, calls uh, being counted by God as righteous or being justified specifically, he, he calls being justified being righted. 
being righted so that when 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 we believe in jesus god says you're everything i require a person to be he then he he counts what jesus did on the cross as having executed justice on our behalf and he looks at us and he now calls us just we are justified before god or or we are righted we are righted with god and we are righted with life and now we have a whole new ability to live the life that god dreamed for us keener said believers being righted is god's perfect gift in christ new behavior may now proceed from a new identity rather than from trying to achieve a right identity by one's own imperfect behavior so see this is the beginning of our relationship with christ we rest from our works we cease from our works we put it to rest we believe in jesus and we we enter into this relationship with God where we, ex- we have the, po- the potential to experience a perpetual Sabbath rest. But that's just the beginning. That's just, you know, that's just getting into this new reality. Here's my second thought about how we can rest from sweaty work. It's to say that we rest in our work. In case you've forgotten the first point, we rest from our work. Now I want to talk about how we rest in our work. So now that we've been righted, now that we've come into right relationship with God, we can get on with becoming in our condition who we are in our position. We can now get on with doing the good works we were made to do. Again, we are not saved by our works, but we are saved to do good works. So now... If it is to be, is it up to me? Is it now I'm going to make it all happen in my own strength? No. That leads us to the exhaustion of the soul. That's not what Jesus offers us. We do have work to do, a lot of work to do. But Jesus promises to help us. I'll give you a moment before I read this next scripture that if you're following along in your life notes, you can write that down. It's important. We do have work to do. But Jesus promises to help us. So here's the other passage we've been focused on the last seven weeks. The Gospel of Matthew. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. This is the promise of Jesus. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So we rest from works when it comes to be accepted by God, uh, but we rest in our work when it comes to the whole of our lives. So there's actually another Greek word translated rest in this passage. And that word means rest in our work. So when we come in the relationship with God, we rest from our work. But now that we're in relationship with God, we partner with God to live the life he dreamed for us. And part of that is we actually have a lot of good work to do. But now we do this work yoked with Jesus. The yoke, Jesus said, take my yoke upon you. The yoke was a wooden frame that connected two animals, typically oxen. And and the reason that they had a yoke was because they were going to pull a heavy load and get work done. 
And Jesus said, listen, we've got work to do essentially, but it's not going to be work that's going to exhaust your soul because you're going to be yoked up with me. You're going to be in partnership with me, and I'm going to help you do what you're called to do. And as a result, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, and you're going to have rest for your soul. I want you to know that though we've got a lot of work to do, we can do this work in a way that is sweatless, not literally, but in a way that is sweatless in terms of that desperate striving that it's easy to get caught up in in this world because we do work in partnership with Jesus. Scripture celebrates hard work from the very beginning of Genesis all the way through Scripture. Hard work, good work is celebrated, but we are not left to do our work alone. Jesus helps us. Uh, the Apostle Paul said that we are God's co-workers. I mean, that's a pretty good deal, isn't it? We are his co-workers. He also said to the Colossians, one time he was talking about how hard he was working, and he said, this is my work, and I can only do it because Christ's mighty energy is at work within me. We must live in a place of faith in Jesus. Not faith in ourselves, but faith in Jesus, where we experience in the good things we're called to do in this world, his energy working through us, when we're in that place, we're in a place of rest. And here's my third and final thought. I want to be real practical here for a moment. I believe that we can connect to God's rest by practicing the Sabbath. And I'm talking now about literally practicing the Sabbath. Not in a legalistic way, as I'll mention before I finished, but literally practicing, perhaps I should say, the principle of Sabbath at the very least. We should see the Sabbath day as a gift from God. Now, it's important to note that, that those who believe in Jesus enter Sabbath rest through faith in Jesus. And we are not required to keep a literal sunup, a sundown to sunup Sabbath day. But just because we're not required to, it doesn't mean that, that we shouldn't. Let me dig into that for a few moments. First of all, Colossians 2, verse 16, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Again, I want to say very clearly that we are counted to have kept the Sabbath, the commandment of the Sabbath, through our faith in Jesus. We enter Sabbath rest, all right? But there's a principle woven through Scripture regarding the keeping of the Sabbath that I think is really important and helps us to connect to this bigger idea of rest. Because I think when you keep the Sabbath properly, it's an act of faith that connects us to God and His, again, bigger concept of Sabbath rest, rest in our souls, and so on. So, in the very beginning, when God created humanity, um, the first thing he did is he essentially told, he blessed them, and then he told them they had an important job to do. So God created mankind in his own image. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, and so on. Uh, God saw all he had made, and it was very good. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work 
Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating he had done. So again, he says to, the, the, to humanity, I, I bless you and here's why I made you. You're supposed to partner with me in, 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 in finishing what I've started on this planet. Essentially, God says we have work to do. I've taught a lot about that. I won't get into that today. God says we have work to do. And then the next day, he said, let's take a day off. I mean, it's really fascinating. It's really fascinating. He calls the first six days of creation good or very good, but he then calls the seventh day of creation holy. It's an important principle for life. Now, did God need to rest? Was God tired? No, God wasn't tired. He didn't need to rest. He clearly is trying to show us something, and it's a truth that's carried all the way through Scripture, and that is incredibly important. He essentially is saying that, that, um, that there is a time when we need to call rest holy, and we need to, to protect it, and we need to participate in it, and it, it looks as if the other six days are more blessed when we do that. All right, so the idea of resting on the seventh day was codified into the law of Moses, Exodus 20. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And so, of course, Jews from that time forward have been keeping the Sabbath. Uh, uh, and it is true that Jesus kept the, the, the Jewish Sabbath as well. There are a lot of examples of that in the New Testament. Now, he, he didn't buy into all of the reams of religious law that had been written about the Sabbath by Talmudic scholars over the course of time. Um, um, Jesus made it clear that you could do good works on the Sabbath and, and, and so on. Um, he, he, didn't, he didn't buy into to, to all of the, the nuances, the hair splitting, if you please, that had arisen by, by, by uh, inhuman thought over time. But he kept the Sabbath, and he was clear about the fact that the Sabbath was something that should serve us that it was created for us. Mark chapter 2, verse 27, he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And the, first, the, the early followers of Jesus, the first Christians, kept the Sabbath as well. Now they changed the Sabbath from the sixth day, uh, the seventh day of the week, to the first day of the week, or Sunday. And the reason that they did that was because Jesus had been raised from the dead on the first day of the week. So they made Sunday the Christian Sabbath, and uh, for you know a couple thousand years, Sunday has been a day, and in my view, still should be a day, when everything is shut down so we can rest from our work and focus on the risen Christ in whom we find true rest. With that in mind, I believe that we, Christians, should look at the Sabbath, literal Sabbath keeping, as a gift from God. It's not something we have to do, it's not law, it's something that we should do. 
There are many things that we don't have to do that we should do. And oftentimes, those are gifts God offers us that if we're smart, we'll receive and practice. Uh, remember the letter of the law, the have to around the thing kills us, but the spirit of the law gives us life. And we've got to find a way to practice the spirit of Sabbath in our lives. Now to practice Sabbath, let me just say, when I say practice the spirit of the Sabbath, I, in case I forget to say this, we all have to figure out how to practice this principle in our own lives. For me, as I'll describe in a few moments, it's literally shutting down my life in terms of all of my work one day a week. I strongly encourage that. You may find another way to do it, but in order to practice Sabbath, there are some things you have to do. And one of those is to practice Sabbath, you have to stop. You have to stop. The word Sabbath means to cease, desist. The idea is a cessation from activity. Truly, it's almost impossible for us to comprehend in today's world. But we don't practice it sometimes because of a lack of faith that God can run the world in our world without us for a day. <clears throat> for centuries, the Israelites were defined by, or, or they found their value in, or others found value in them through their work. Remember, they were slaves in Egypt. But God said that part of practicing the Sabbath was to stop and to not be enslaved to work anymore. De Deuteronomy 5, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. So we must remember that we can't be slaves to our work. And this is such a challenge in today's world. So what are we talking about? We're talking about soul rest. We're talking about our souls get exhausted. And I'm gonna tell you that when we are living in a desperate, sweaty, striving, we've gotta make it happen way, that, it, that we're not living in faith, and that we, we're not going to live in the rest that God promises us. And now I'm going to tell you that one of the ways we connect to that is there are times in our lives when we literally stop. We shut it down. In order to convey trust in God and to remind ourselves that we are not slaves to the systems of this world, to our own work, to our own ambitions, and so on. Um, so Sharon and I were in Israel a few weeks ago, seems like a lifetime ago now, and we were there with a wonderful group from TLCC hosting uh, a tour in Israel. And after the group went home, we stayed a few days uh, in order to get a little bit of rest before we re-entered. It had been a very intense time uh, hosting and teaching several hours uh, every day. And uh, anyway, we splurged, uh, we got a really nice hotel, uh, just outside of the uh, old uh, city of Jerusalem, uh, in Jerusalem, but just outside of the walls of the old city of Jerusalem. Um, it was wonderful, except that we planned our, uh, our time, I think we had two days, and one of the days was Shabbat, the Jewish Sabbath. And um, I should have remembered this from having been in Israel before, and I should have remembered this from having so many Jewish friends now, but in a, in a way that I had never noticed before, on Shabbat, the city of Jerusalem shut down. 
I'm telling you, it shut down. And the area we were staying in, you couldn't get a cup of coffee because on Shabbat, it was work to brew a cup of coffee. So you couldn't get a cup of coffee. We had to walk a long way to an Arab section of Jerusalem to get a not very good cup of coffee. It was hard to find it. Um, we, we, were, we were in the process of negotiating to buy a painting from, a, from an art gallery in the old city in Jerusalem. And uh, we, were, we were told in no uncertain terms as we were trying to make a decision as to whether or not to purchase this, we were told by the very urbane owner that we would have to make a decision by 3 o'clock on Friday. Uh, and it didn't matter to him if he lost the sale. And he was very kind because at 3 o'clock, he shut it down. He, it, th- though the Sabbath didn't start until sundown, he had to get home and get prepared for the Sabbath because on the Sabbath, he wouldn't do any work. Even if it meant he lost a sale, it didn't matter. He was not a slave to the sale. Once a week, he shut it down to remind himself he wasn't a slave anymore. And um, we, in this hotel, you know, the only food you could eat was food that had been prepared before the Sabbath started. So they prepared it, and then they set it out on a buffet. And again, we're staying in a really nice hotel, and I'm telling you that just to make the point that the, the hotel became full of, of, of people, uh, obviously Jewish people, who checked in before the Sabbath started so they could fully engage the Sabbath over that next day. And so we found ourselves sitting in the, in the restaurant enjoying what was actually a delicious buffet, though the food had already been prepared, um, with, with all of these Jewish people uh, observing the Sabbath, table after table, packed. There must have been 100 tables. Uh, throughout this restaurant, packed with families from the youngest baby to the, to the, to the, to the, to the, eldest person of the family dressed up uh, every table with bread and wine and uh, to, to, to celebrate the Sabbath uh, and every table every table a leader with a prayer book who, who would stand there this is going on all over the room who would stand up and, and, and read uh, uh, from from the Hebrew scriptures and and chant songs and all of them would sing songs together and I'm, I'm sitting there looking at this going on all over this room and on, on one hand just to be frank I was frustrated we were there on the Sabbath because we were there to have fun but I was so moved by this observation of these people that's been going on now for several thousand years as they shut their lives down to be reminded that they were not slaves to their work they were servants of God and for one day a week they dedicated themselves to worship and to rest and to delight and to family and I realize you know this is part of how you preserve a people over several thousand years you commit that once a week you're gonna come back to what's really important in life and I say all of that just to say that uh, I think that the literal practice of the Sabbath is a way that we show that we truly believe in God So on my Sabbath day, which I practice on Monday, since I obviously work on Sunday, I work from early Tuesday morning all the way through Sunday morning, pretty much every day, early in the morning until late in the evening, the kind of schedule that you folks keep as well. But on Monday, I shut it down. I've done it for years. I don't read emails about church business. I have a gatekeeper who give me an email only if it's extremely urgent or maybe good news. I refuse to get engaged in 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 the business of work i shut it 
down. It's hard to do. All of us tend to have this idea that if we're not fully engaged and busy in making it happen all the time, that it, the world's going to fall apart. And really, that's a lack of faith in God. There, come, there are times when we need to say that we we trust you. We trust you to run the world without us. We trust you everything's going to be fine 24 hours from now. We're going to think about you. We're going to connect to this perpetual Sabbath keeping by shutting it down a day a week. See, these are the kind of things that keep us from having exhausted souls. So practicing Sabbath causes us to rest from our work and to trust God that he can run the world without us for a day or however it is that you choose to practice Sabbath, whenever it is that you stop. And then you, part of that is you focus on your relationship with Jesus and, and, and who he is and what he's done and you enter his rest. Listen, in this series, we've been talking about soul rest. How is it that we have rest in our souls? Well, we ultimately believe in Jesus and partner with Jesus in a way that allows us to experience rest in the deepest part of who we are. We do not have to live exhausted, sweaty, anxious, striving, desperate lives. We can live lives of faith where we really trust Jesus to be the Lord of our lives and to be at work in ways that that make everything about our lives, including our work, more effective. So, we can have rest for our souls.